The B2B sales world is in turmoil. Quota attainment is down. Revenue growth is slowed. Turnover is up. All of this is in the face of ever-increasing pressure to perform. Is it a surprise that the average sales leader stays in place for only 12 to 18 months? That's barely enough time to start executing the strategy. These problems are fixable, and we are going to serve the sales leadership community with this show. I'm Lucas Price. I've launched and exited B2B startups and built elite sales organizations. Now I want to give back by bringing you this podcast, Building Elite Sales Teams. It will be full of actionable best practices to help you excel as a sales leader. We're going to burn the churn. Let's get back to winning. Building Elite Sales Teams is on. Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. This is your friendly neighborhood town strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. The era of free money in B2B tech sales is over. You can't have a revolving door within your organization, so it becomes critical that you keep your most ambitious and hardworking talent. One surefire way to send your team running for the exits is to consistently hire from outside the organization. You've got to be able to show people within your sales organization a path forward and a path up. But if all you do is promote from within, you also run the risk of becoming an insular club and you can run stale. So what's the right way to build growth in your organization without the environment becoming stale? Building a succession and development plan is critical for sales success. And that's what we're going to tackle today in the founder's feature of building elite sales teams. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Thanks, Jim. Looking forward to having another conversation with you. I'm a big fan of these founders features because it actually gives practical experience and practical information for those sales leaders from the perspective of somebody that's built multiple high growth startups and accelerated them. For those listeners who are new to the show, give us a quick recap of, of your story and what you've done in the world of SaaS. I'm a founder of Yardstick and as a Yardstick solves the waste and loss from failed sales hires with tools that add structure and guidance to the interview process for sales roles and then tracks the progress of new hires against the hiring criteria. And this startup grew out of uh, my previous sales leadership positions where I realized that the number one thing, not only for my career trajectory, but for the career trajectory of everyone on my team was the other people that I hired on the team. And the better job that I did at hiring, the better I was doing for everyone on the team in terms of setting them up for success and job opportunities out there in, in the startup world and, and the rest of the business world. And, but yeah, I've been a sales leader multiple times, most recently at ZipWhip, where it's key part of it selling to Twilio two and a half years ago for 850 million. Started there with less than a million dollars in ARR, built the team that took it to over a hundred million. And so that's, that's one of the foundational pieces that brought me to starting Yardstick. One of the interesting things about our previous conversations about your ZipWhip story is that during your time there, it was almost like you had three different jobs. Every 18 months, the scope and span of your responsibilities changed. And that offers a really interesting context for the conversation that we're going to have today, which is what should your hiring and development strategy look like? So tell us a little bit about how your hiring strategy and development strategy evolved during your time at ZipWhip. The, the entire time I was there, my title was Senior Vice President of Sales. But the first 18 months I was there, what that meant was that I was a sales manager. I had a couple of sellers. I was doing the things that sales managers do in terms of enabling them, in terms of removing barriers, helping them on deals, 
making sure that we had things like territories and compensation plans and all of that set up correctly. And then after about 18 months, we'd grown to the point where there was, I think I had 15 direct reports or some unmanageable number. And so hired the first sales managers in. And so now I had sales managers reporting to me. And so I was acting more like a director of sales and that I had multiple sales managers reporting to me. I had two teams. I was on the executive team and then I had my sales leadership team that consisted of my top sales operations person and my recruiter and the sales managers who reported to me. And so that was the second 18 months and 18 months again, I'd gotten to, I don't remember how many, but 12, 13, 14 sales managers who were, were reporting to me. And so I promoted a sales director who had some of the managers reporting to them. And then sometime later, I added another sales director with more of the sales managers reporting to them. And I added a, a vice president of enterprise sales that had people reporting to them. And we had a particular segment that kind of stood alone with the director there that was reporting to be in addition to the, the sales operations folks as well. So the job changed a lot over time. And from there, it continued to, to grow. And I never really felt like there was another change. I felt like my job changed a lot, but there wasn't another 18 months later. And then I had a new thing. Through that period, I, I really focused on improving my communication to the team, my written communication, my spoken communication, because I started to feel like the thing that, you know, one of the things that I had to give was the air cover to all of the managers and directors on this is what our strategy is. And this is how every individual here plays in our strategy. So if you think about each of those three stages, I think that the overriding principle through them is like, hey, I need to get people in the seat that I'm in right now. I'm a sales manager. I need to get these executives that work for me. I need to get some of them to be equipped where they're ready to be great sales managers. And then when I was the sales director, I needed to start to equip some of the sales managers to be a great sales director and on. And that was part of the development philosophy that I needed to work myself out of the job by teaching people to be great at the things that I was currently doing. Let's dig into that a little bit more. Let's just assume that first stage is a true sort of startup or accelerating growth stage. When you look at your development and promotion strategy at that stage of an organization, what were the key things that stood out at that point and how did that inform how you hired and developed talent at that stage? At that stage, we were growing so quickly that there were going to be lots of sales managers jobs where if you met a certain performance threshold and you had the right characteristics, you could be like relatively young in your career, but still be primed and ready to be promoted at Zipwit because of the way we were going. Now, I will say in retrospect, I think we made some mistakes on the promotions, mostly around, we promoted some great individuals, but what we didn't do is that we didn't bring in enough ideas from the outside. And so the people at ZipWhip, the account executives at ZipWhip saw, hey, if I perform well and I do it the right way, there's a great opportunity for me to be promoted. And so I think that was really great for the culture. But I think some of how we did things became a little bit too insular because we were just learning how we did them and not bringing in outside ideas and outside perspectives and kind of professionalism on how to manage teams. And so I think in that early stage, we overdid it one direction versus the other, but we didn't have to have a lot of infrastructure around, oh, you become an SDR1 and then an SDR2, then an SDR3, and then an AE1, 2, 3. 
We didn't have to build in a lot of that infrastructure yet because we were just growing so quickly that there were lots of opportunities for promotion and you could pretty quickly move from sales development rep to account executive to sales manager if you were really firing on all cylinders and doing it the right way. If you had the opportunity to hit rewind and go back to that stage of organizational development, what would be the one thing that you would have changed at that stage of development that you think would have made the most impact in how you grew from that point forward? So I think the thing that would have made the biggest impact was hiring some like very professional skilled managers from the outside and not just doing all promotions. Let's say a 50-50 mix or 40% from the outside and 60% from promotion. So that's, I think that's the biggest thing. I think there are other things as well. I think we could have been more specific around these are the skills that we've identified that it takes to perform at a really high level at ZipWhip and give people grades on those skills and say that and create as a criteria that they have to get to a certain level of proficiency on discovery and on demoing and on the solution proposal and on the negotiation and the signing. Say that create criteria where they have to get to a certain level of proficiency on those things to be eligible for a promotion, as well as hit certain numbers consistently from a performance level to be eligible for promotion. So I would have done more around creating some infrastructure. So this is a, a, a close second, is do more around creating some infrastructure on what the requirements are to be promoted. I like your comment about creating more clarity around what the requirements are for the next level. It's almost like you're building a checklist that people can measure against. If you're building that sort of checklist that actually gives you an objective criteria to, to measure against when people are in line to get promoted. What was the biggest gap that would have been solved by bringing other people into the organization and promoting them into the manager role? I was pretty green as a leader. And so it, it was just a very organic growth thing where we could have done a better job at identifying where people needed to get better in the sales process and just been better at helping our sellers develop very high level sales skills. If we had more outside perspective and it wasn't just, oh, hey, look, we're closing deals really fast. And so let's just hire more people to close deals really fast. And we're just going. And I think that over time, but it felt hectic to people. And when it feels hectic to people, it affects the culture, especially in a transactional environment. It can feel a little bit like, or fraternity type environment. And we didn't, I don't think we got heavy into that, but we got a little bit more like that than I would have preferred. And I think just some more like professionalism and outside ideas around like, all right, Let's make sure that we implement these steps. These are the problems that we're going to run into down the road if we don't implement these steps now. I just think there's a lot of things we could have done earlier that would have gotten us into bigger deals, would have been more strategic if we had brought outside people in earlier who were looking at some of the deals we were doing and say, let's hold on a minute and let's see if we can turn this $10,000 deal into a $50,000 deal. So I, I, it's hard to pinpoint just one thing, but there's a lot of things that I think we, we left on the table by just going fast and not having outside voices in there that were pointing out to us where we should be slowing down a little bit. When you look back, you've gotten the organization to go from zero to 55 miles an hour. Now you're in that second stage where you're trying to go from 55 to 80 miles an hour. So you've built out the organization, you have some success, 
your role has expanded. How did your hiring and development process evolve at that next stage where you've risen to the ranks of managing managers? We got a lot more deliberate at this point in terms of what we were doing in interviews. I would say we didn't get deliberate enough, but we got a lot more. It went from like completely haphazard to hey, managers, this is what the role that you have to play in the interview, and this is what you want me to do, and we want you to fill out scorecards. I don't think we gave them enough help at that point in time and to, to truly be great at interviewing, but we started to put some of those pieces in place. We started to try to collect data on, on what was leading to successful hires at ZipWhip. I think we learned later that the, we were collecting the wrong data or we were collecting data the wrong way. And so it didn't end up being useful to us. And that played somewhat into my decision to start Yardstick as well is just making sure that you can collect the right data to be predictive in the hiring process. From a development perspective, we started to put more formal structure around how to get promoted, the things that you need to do to get promoted. We started to put more formal structure around what we wanted from our managers in terms of one-on-ones and team meetings and, and Salesforce cleanliness. One of the things that was interesting about that evolution that you described was that you became much more process-oriented and some of that process orientation showed up in how you hired. Tell us a little bit more about what you were looking for in the hiring process at that stage of the organization's development that more consistently predicted success of a seller. We were looking for candidates who had a natural curiosity, who had a level of uh, kind of resourcefulness and stick-to-itiveness that they wouldn't easily give up and that they would that they could tackle difficult tasks, things that were in, in an environment where it could was easy to get discouraged. And we were looking for candidates who were coachable and who would take feedback and adapt the feedback and wanted to get better from the feedback that they received. Those were some of the primary items that we were looking for at that stage. So that covers some of the things that you're looking for from a hiring perspective. The other side of the equation, or at least the different side of the equation, is building capability at the leadership tier underneath you for them to take the next step. So what were some of the things that you did there that positioned you for success in the next stage of the organizational development. About that time, I read the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And one of the things in that book is a republished blog post from Ben Horowitz about the different types of CEOs. And he goes over that some of the CEOs are doers. They do first and they think later. And other CEOs are thinkers where they think, but they have trouble with action. And I identified myself reading the article is clearly a thinker. And so I wanted people who worked directly with me who were doers, who would fill in for the fact that I like to really plod and plan and that they would take things from me and they would put them into action and I could critique it. I could give feedback. I could coach, but they wouldn't wait for me to get going. They would just, they'd, they'd start it. And so that was one of the things that for the people who work for directly for me is I like to mostly, not entirely, but I like to mostly hire doers rather than thinkers to, to offset one of my weaknesses. And then among managers, we're looking for people who have the skills, who can do the coaching, who can, who have high levels of emotional intelligence, who aren't trying to manipulate their team. They're trying to connect with their team and help their team succeed. We're looking for people who are willing to set aside in the short term their own financial motives for the good of their team, who care more about the success of their team members than they do about themselves. And so those are 
some of the things that we're looking for in those management positions. It's funny that you describe the two flavors of leaders or CEOs. One is the thinker and the other is the doer. I'm firmly in the doer camp. I'm a run fast and break things, guys. I can operate in that thinking space for a while, but if it's too long, I start getting the answers. One of the things that I'm curious about is you uncovered your profile as a leader by happening on a book. If you had any advice to other leaders that who are out there that want that level of self-awareness or want to build that level of self-awareness within their organization. What are some of the things that you've discovered now that might've been helpful back then to give you even more self-awareness about how that team needs to be constructed? Before I get to your question, in the article, one of the things he says is that he can point, he points to examples of successful leaders in each camp, successful CEOs in each camp and failures in each camp. And so it's not that one style is the successful style and the other style is the failed style. He says it's important to put people around you that have the opposite style of you. And when, you, when you're a doer and it's all doers, then too many people breaking things and no one reeling them in. And if you're a thinker and you put all thinkers around you, then nothing ever gets done. And so part of the importance of that is just being aware of it and making sure that you have the right people around you. To get back to your question, I think one of the other things, so I live in Seattle. One of the other things that was happening at that point in time was the Seattle Seahawks were contending. They were winning Super Bowls. They were the best around. And someone who has like a very different personality than me, but was like a very successful leader at that time was Pete Carroll, the leader of the Seahawks. To run the ball at the goal line or do, were you the one that told him to pass? <laughs> no comment. But one of the, but I, one of the things that, that he talked about that I really, you know, thought that I really took to heart was that as a leader, you have to be authentic to yourself. Like it wouldn't work for me to try to be a Pete Carroll style leader. And it wouldn't work for Pete Carroll to try to lead like I do. One of the things is like, Hey, there's things that you can learn from all of the leaders that you've worked with. But don't try to be them, try to be authentic to you. And that's, if, if you start there, that's going to help a lot, I think, with the self-awareness and with the, the awareness that develops over time about what it takes for you to be a great leader. That's a really good call out. And I think uh, it, it points to a broader sort of debate in the world of work where you have this argument, or at least this stream of thought, where people are always saying you should be spending time working and shoring up on your weaknesses. And I'm in the camp that you should always play to your strengths. And it sounds like the argument that you're making is that you need to be at peace with who you are and play to your strengths and be that person versus trying to suck up a lot of energy in shoring up some of the gaps, just hire people that shore up those gaps. And then you have a balanced leadership organization. I want to fast forward to that next stage of development. So you, we, you've gone from zero to 55. Now we've gone from 55 to 80. How did you take it from 80 to 120 miles an hour? What were the things that you were doing as a leader at that stage of development in ZipWhip that informed how you hired and how you developed that organization? One of the things that happens at that point in time for a lot of companies is they start to hit bumps in the road. Like you were growing 120% a year and now you're growing 70% a year and your board is saying, what's wrong with you? Your board is saying you're losing sales efficiency. And so you start to hit bumps in the road. And as a company, not just as a sales organization, but as a company, you start to make bigger strategic decisions. Like, hey, the way we're gonna get it back is by, if we focus on 
this set of our customers, then we're going and really succeeding with this set. And then we're going to sell bigger contracts. We're going to sell them fast and we're going to have lower churn because this is our best set. Or this is the customers that we can deliver the most for. And so strategic decisions start to be more laborious and bigger and they start to affect parts of all of the different organizations, all the different sub organizations, sales, marketing, product in ways where it positively affects some people and negatively affects other people. Territories start to get shifted around and stuff like that. And so I could see that was coming. And I felt like a big part of my job at that point in time was the communication to the team. And so for instance, we had all sales Monday morning team meeting that was run mostly by some of my directors, but I started to make sure more often that there was a slot for me to talk about how the company's changing, the strategic reasons for it, how, hey, if you're in tech sales, things are always going to be changing and this is part of what we have to accept. And we can be a victim of the changes or we can lead the changes. And these are the things we need to do as a sales organization in order to lead the changes. And this is what your role is as an individual in order to make this company successful. So I think that communication, just the things that you do on one-on-one -on -one conversations don't get to the whole organization anymore the way they used to. And so you have to be more deliberate about what you say to the whole organization, what you say in emails, what you say when you have the chance to speak to everyone and really, and make sure that you nail that part right and that people understand what the company is doing, why it's doing it and what role they have to play. So I think that was one of the big changes for me. And then, hey, you let your managers and your directors run and things will bubble up to you and that there, there were things that, difficult problems that I would have rather didn't come, but they did become my problems. And so that's a big part of it. And there's a certain cadence with planning and quarterly all hands and quarterly board meetings and, and executive team meetings and stuff like that, that you, you have to deal with, but you can't let that consume you. You still have to figure out the time to say, Hey, these are the changes that we need to make to succeed in the organization and not just live by that cadence as part of it, but you got to, uh, take your time to think bigger than just what's this week's cadence. One of the things that I hear from your answer is that at that stage of development, you were probably managing a lot more people-related issues. You mentioned territory changes and the impact of all of those changes in, in how people are being seen and felt. Did that mean that when you went and were either promoting leaders or hiring leaders, you were looking for specific capabilities from an EQ and people management perspective that you weren't looking for earlier on in the organization. It probably does become more important at that point in time. I'll say I'll, I always look for it in the organization. One way to get on my bad side is if you follow the cliche of, of kiss up and kick down. I People who clearly treated me different than they treated other people, I'm not a fan of that oftentimes, but not always like pretty transparent. And I guess they're doing it because they think it's going to help them get ahead, but it doesn't help with me. And hopefully it doesn't help with others as well. It shouldn't help. The EQ of, hey, I'm the same person. I'm consistent who I am as a person. I have the humility to not take my title as something that I lord over other people is always important to me. I think that maybe it does get more subtle and more challenging as the organization gets bigger and therefore more important, but there's a certain base level that I think you always have to have. Really great conversation, Lucas. I think we covered a lot of ground there. We've gone through three different stages of a B2B sales organizations, development, 
So thinking back on all the things that we've talked about so far, what are the two or three key things that the listeners need to take away from this conversation that's going to best inform their hiring and development strategy if they're in the world of B2B tech sales? A lot of the, the skills that are really important are important to develop them as a team muscle, not just an individual muscle. And a lot of them for most people aren't natural. Most people are, are left to their own devices are not good at hiring. And so you, so people need the tools and the structure and something like yardstick in order to make them great at hiring. A lot of people are not naturally good, even people that are, let me say it this way, people who, a lot of people who are great at sales still aren't naturally good at some of the individual sales skills. And so you need to be deliberate about building that muscle as an organization for the sales skills that are really important to you. And then managing as well. If you give people the infrastructure in terms of here's how to be a great manager, they're going to do a lot better than just leaving people to their own devices in terms of go and get performance on this team. The key pieces that you need, don't assume that people are good at them and build the muscle as an organization, not just as a group of individuals. Follow stuff, Lucas. If people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm active on LinkedIn. So definitely hit me up on LinkedIn and be happy to connect there. For everybody listening, thanks for joining us uh, on another Founders Feature segment. When I think about this conversation, I think the one big lesson that comes out of it, and I can't believe I'm going to even say this out loud, is that regardless of what stage you're at from an organizational perspective, even as a sales organization, you're gonna be served well if you slow down to speed up. One of the big lessons that came out of this conversation was how there was an emphasis on putting in definitions, systems, and processes. Those are the things that are gonna enable your teams to function at a peak level. If you're in too much of a rush to go fast and you don't take the time to build the right guardrails, you're going to go flying light, right off a cliff. So don't do that. Can't believe I said that. I'm not a process guy. So if you're hearing me say that, you know it's important to pay attention. But I appreciate you sharing that with us, Lucas. For those of you who have listened and liked the conversation, make sure you leave us a review. If you want to continue the conversation, make sure you check out yardstick.team. Drop us a message and we'll get connected with you there. Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. Please remember to give us a five-star review. And if you want more information about Yardstick, you can find us at www.yardstick.team. You can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn by searching for Lucas Price.